This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 30 this morning. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that really he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Good morning. Hopefully the fact that I'm losing my mic already is not a bad sign of how this morning's going to go. Um, I am uh, Pastor Erica, and I am the pastor of mission and discipleship here at Community Covenant Church. And I am still wrestling with my mic back here. And I win. All right. <laughs> Good morning. Um, I have a, I don't know about you guys, I, I have an, a little bit of an admission to make. I'm a bit of a, of a, a Facebook stalker. I don't know if you guys know what that means, but it's a little bit where you don't necessarily post a whole lot. You just kind of watch people's pictures and stuff like that just to kind of see what's going on. And I've noticed lately this summer seems to be this summer of reunions. Lots of people having reunions, and maybe it's just my age and the people that I, that I, you know, kind of, um, are my friends and the age group that I'm in. People are having their, you know, their 20th, um, uh, reunion. They're having their 25th high school reunion and thinking about it. And, and uh, I think sometimes when we go to reunions, one of the things that we want is we want people to not necessarily notice how we've gotten older, but kind of how we've gotten better, right? You know, um, maybe we, you know, we, we are, we're fitter, you know, maybe we're, uh, you know, uh, our hair color has uh, not necessarily changed in a bad way, you know, but we want people to notice those things. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking about um, about three or four years ago, um, went down to Texas, which, which is where I'm from. And I uh, reconnected with a friend of mine who had been my roommate off and on for um, about five years during my, my 20s and uh, before my husband and I got married. And, uh, you know, she was pretty excited. She said, hey, you know, it'll be great to see him. I've seen him a really long time. And, and, uh, and, you know, so let's meet at Starbucks. So we meet at Starbucks. 
And uh, we sit there, and we're just kind of catching up. We really had not spoken to each other in probably about 15 years. And so we're sharing what's going on, you know, in the 15, in the span of 15 years, you know, we'd each had two kids. We'd each, you know, traveled to all of these different places and, and we were talking back and forth. And I, I think we talked for probably about three hours. And at the end of that three hours, she said something to me that I found really rather devastating. Because you see, one of the most radical things that had happened to me in those 15 years was that I had become a follower of Christ. And so as we were sharing our stories, and, you know, I kept trying to throw things in there about how Jesus had affected my life, and, and, you know, that, you know, kind of throwing those things in there. At the end of the three hours, she looks at me, and she just kind of shakes her head, and she goes, Wow, you haven't changed a bit. I thought, oh, I failed. Sometimes we want to hear that. Sometimes we want to hear, you look just the same. But for me, I desperately wanted to hear that the biggest thing that had happened in my life, the single most significant thing, decision that I had made, had changed who I was, and that someone who knew me back then could see it now. And so this morning, as we move into the passage, back into the passage in Acts, I want us to kind of have that lens as we start out. We have Saul. And in the passages that Pastor Todd preached on last week, you have a man who encounters Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And he has this radical transformation there to the point to where he is just so excited that what he decides to do is that he is now called to preach the word. He is completely turned a 180. And as soon as he gets his sight back, he hits the road. He goes, starts going to the same places where he would have been preaching the death of believers. And he begins proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So we pick up in verse 20. And it says, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. All those who heard him were astonished. And ask, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? I mean, they're looking at this guy and they're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like just a few days ago, wasn't he the one that was delivering the death orders? Wasn't he the one that came in all spit and vinegar saying, we need to gather these people up and put them to death? What happened? What's going on? If you think about it, he was the number one guy that the synagogues had. He was the Pharisee. He was the top draft pick, so to speak. And so when someone radically changes their mind like that, what happens? 
everybody turned against him. So we look at verse 23 to 25. And it says, After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Saul's conversion had made him a wanted man. Not wanted in the way that he was the star teacher. Not in the way that he was the guy, the go-to guy for the synagogue. But he was the one that they needed to destroy. A little bit of that... um, what would they call it in politics? Uh, controlling the information, right? This guy has suddenly turned into the most dangerous person in all of Damascus. And so his people need to get him out of there. So quickly, they get him out. Now, I've always wondered about this. Um, Because they hung out, they knew they were wanting to kill him, but here's the funny part. Um, It says that they got him out by lowering him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Now, I'm just trying to imagine what it must be like for a grown man to be lowered in a basket from a wall that was probably 10, 12, maybe 15 feet high. Made me think, it makes me think a little bit of those, uh, the scene in the, in Indiana Jones. I'm totally aging myself right now, but the original Indiana Jones, okay? And you remember where they have, um, Marilyn in the, in the basket and they're carrying her around and I kind of picture a little bit like that. You know, they stuff him in the basket and they lower him down and then he gets out and then what is he supposed to do? Great, so I'm out of the city, now what? I know. I'm sure he thinks to himself. I'll go to Jerusalem, right? I'll go to Jerusalem because that's the headquarters of this new movement. This is where Jesus' followers are. This is where I'm going to go back to this place, and and it's going to be awesome. So he does. And in verse 26, it says, When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this part doesn't surprise me. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. Now, why would they be afraid of him? And as we think about this, for Saul, this was literally returning to the scene of a crime. A crime that he had been deeply involved with. In fact, were this modern times, were we dealing with the same criminal justice system that we have in the United States today, Paul's involvement with Stephen's death would have been considered first-degree murder. Why? Because he was the guy who orchestrated the whole thing. Maybe he didn't cast a single stone. Maybe he never got his hands dirty. 
But he was the guy who ordered it. If you think about it in terms of uh, the Godfather, in a lot of ways, Paul, Saul, was the Godfather. He was the guy that didn't necessarily get deeply involved, but he was the guy who sat back and said, make it happen. I'll hold your stuff while it goes on. So imagine being a disciple. Imagine Stephen having been one of your friends, one of your brothers, one of the ones that you started out with, that you shared a meal with, that you prayed with, that you worshipped with, that you lived with. And here is this guy come knocking on your door. Guess what? Use it in modern terms. I'm saved. I know Jesus. Can I come stay with you? What would that have been like? I don't blame them for being afraid. I don't blame them for being terrified because they had zero proof of his transformation. They had zero proof that he was any different. In fact, this this week as Tyler and I were discussing it, they didn't have any proof he wasn't a spy. They didn't have a single indication, guarantee that what he was doing or who he was representing himself as was actually true. So they were really afraid. And I imagine that they probably hightailed it and ran from him when he tried to come and have a conversation with him. Whether it was in the marketplace, wherever it was, I'm sure that they hid. They didn't want anything to do with him. Now, I want you all to think a little bit about what that must have felt like for Paul, for Saul. Because here's, if we were to say that last week was about Saul's redemption, I would dare say that this piece of this passage is about Saul's reconciliation. Because Saul had done no greater harm to anyone else or no other group than this group of believers. He posed a threat in Damascus, but he'd actually been responsible for a death in Jerusalem and the imprisonment of many more. So he came in, and I'm sure that in part his heart came in with this sense of, I'm like you. I get it now. Please let me in. I want to learn from you. I want to grow. I want to understand what it means to follow. And fear kept them from allowing him in. So I'd like to move to verse 27. It says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Now, Barnabas, this is his second appearance of Barnabas. The first appearance of Barnabas is where he does this crazy thing where he sells all his stuff early in the book of Acts. And he gives everything to the movement. He gives everything to the church. 
It says here, here is all of it. And it put him in this place where they were like, you are amazing. You get it. They called him, in fact, his name was Joseph. Barnabas was kind of a nickname. It was an insider name. It was the name um, <clears throat> that meant encourager. And so Barnabas appears again in Acts. And this time, he's acting as a reconciler. He's acting as someone who's willing to stand up, risk his reputation, and say... I think we need to give this guy a chance. I've seen the way that he's preaching in the synagogues. I've seen the way that he's acting. And I think that we need to let him in. And that we need to put our covering of protection over him. Because they're still, the Jews were still looking for him. He'd seriously ticked some people off. And he desperately needed the help of the disciples and the protection of the disciples. So Barnabas did this bold thing. And he said, let's take him in. And I want to park there for a little while. Because I think that a lot of times when we talk about the book of Acts, we talk about the Acts of the Apostles, right? That's actually the full name of this book. It's the Acts of the Apostles. And a lot of times what we do is we fixate on the miraculous things, the Acts that the Apostles did. The raising of the dead, the healing of people, the escape from prison, all of these like, whoa, things, right? Except a large part of the Acts of these Apostles was walking and acting in obedience to the teachings of Jesus Christ. They were acting like Jesus. They were acting in the way that Jesus had instructed them. Now, as believers, 2,000 years later, we have a, a, a whole bunch of instructions that were actually penned by the Apostle Paul. But the believers at this point in time, all that they had were the teachings of the apostles, which were therefore only the teachings of Jesus and what was in the Old Testament. They didn't have anything else. And so what were they left to follow? What were they left to kind of work with? If you have your Bible or your electronic device, I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke 6, 27. <clears throat> And this would have been something that the disciples would have known very, very well. It says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat... Do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if everyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have done to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. 
And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. As I think about what it must have been like for those disciples after Stephen's death and knowing who Saul was, I would imagine that part of the gathering of that group was a a time of praying, intentional prayer for Saul. Lord, bless him. Lord, draw him to you. Lord, make yourself known to him. We're not going to hold it against him. Doesn't mean we're not going to be afraid of him. (laughs) But we're going to pray for him because that's what you told us we needed to do. This is how you ask us to act towards others. Now, how much of that prayer affected what happened in Saul and later Paul's life? I don't know, and I wouldn't dare to kind of guess. But the challenge in that is their willingness to let him come back in, to let him come in. To say, we're not going to hold this against you. For Barnabas to take the risk and say, this is the way we're supposed to be, so we're going to ask, I'm going to say, let him in. Let's forgive him. Let's allow him to be reconciled to us. No guarantees, no promises, just trusting and being obedient to the word of God. This is hard stuff. And I think that we, I struggle with that. And a lot of times I struggle with it because it's hard for me to do this thing in my own home. So I think to myself, if I can't do it, you know, if I if I have a hard time forgiving those close to me, how am I supposed to do it out here, right? Except here's a something that happened. I'll share a story with you guys. So <clears throat> some of you know that um, I have a real passion for um, for prison ministry. Um, and that's something that, that has grown over the last few years. And I have um, had my faith challenged. I have had my, um, just my own kind of personal sense of self and boundaries and everything else challenged by being involved with prison ministry. But as a leader and as a pastor... I don't know that there was a larger challenge than one that I experienced um, about six or eight months ago. In Anchorage, there is something called a reentry coalition. It's a group made up of nonprofit organizations as well as government um, agencies like the Department of Labor and the Department of Transportation and um, the... Uh, um, Department of Corrections. It's all of these group of people that are kind of looking at the state recidivism rate, right? How many times do people go back to prison? And they're all getting together, and, you know, with all these nonprofit organizations, they're all trying to crack the code, right? How do we stop people from going back to prison? How do we stop this cycle of people continuing to go back to jail over and over and over again? And uh, I have to tell you, I don't know how many of you guys work 
in those kinds of environments where it's like government agencies or whatever, and you feel like it's like, you know, um, one half a step forward and like 15 back kind of situations. And so I often find myself really frustrated in these, in these meetings. This particular, um, this particular meeting, I was really excited, and a friend of mine who's part of the coalition said, you know, you really don't want to miss this meeting. They've got a guy who the state has hired, who works, who had been working for the state of Michigan, who had helped the state of Michigan cut their recidivism rate, the return of pe- people coming back to prison, by half. Saved the state of Michigan some insane, like, $1.7 billion. Shut, you know, down private prisons. I mean, just just this great thing. So the state, you know, hires this guy as a consultant, brings him in, right? And he's meeting with the coalition. And I'm sitting there, and, and mind you, we're sitting in this large room, this round, these round tables, and I am very aware that I am the only person from the faith community that's represented in the room. Everybody else is either a government is from a government organization or is from a, um, a non-profit organization that works with um, offenders getting out of prison. <clears throat> so this guy starts talking, and, and uh, it was really funny because he was very clear about his politics and his political party association. In fact, I think that um, he probably you know, mentioned his political party association more than he mentioned any other word. You know, he kept saying, I won't tell you what it is, but anyway, he just kept saying it over and over and over again. And he was talking about this plan that they'd come up with and how wonderful it was and how they'd done all of this stuff. And and how each community needed to be involved and each community needed to be prepared. And and he's getting really fired up and he's getting kind of loud. And he looks at me or he t- quickly turns and he looks at me and he says, and you, people like you. And I'm kind of sitting there and I'm thinking, oh, this is not going to go well. You need to be the ones who are the backbone of, in- of bringing people back. You people, the faith community, needs to be, is the absolute key to cutting recidivism. And if you all are not a part of that, if you are not a part of the forgiveness and the reconciliation that these people long for, we will never be able to cut the recidivism rate no matter where you are. And I kind of felt a little like I wanted to wave. Because, of course, all 25 sets of eyes are all looking at me now. And he continued to point at me. I mean, just like that. It was a little intimidating. He kept throwing his finger at me. And we need you. And we need you. And during the question and answer session, someone raised their hand and they said, well, you know, but these people, I don't understand what the problem is. These people need a place to live and they need, you know, transportation and they need social services. And he said, you know what? I've been doing this for a really long time. And I've been in a lot of institutions all over the United States. And he said, the one common thing that I can tell you that every single one of those people that I have ever encountered, that has lived, has been able to succeed over and over again. 
He said the one thing they are all looking for is forgiveness. They all want to be forgiven. And the church has been in the business of forgiveness way longer than we've been in the business of reentry. So our challenge this morning, our challenge is what does it mean for us to live as reconcilers? For me, my passion is in prison ministry, but that might not be yours. And that is okay. For Barnabas, it was bringing Saul in. For Jesus, it was bringing us all in. Maybe for you guys over here, the kids sitting over here in the second row, maybe it's just about you guys figuring out who can you be friends with that nobody else wants to be friends with? Who is it that you can stand up for and say, you know what, they're not that bad? Maybe for parents, it's giving that kid that your kid is friends with that you're like, mm, I'm not so sure. An open door and an open place at your dinner table because maybe they don't have any place else to go. Maybe it's at your workplace or in your classroom where you need to be able to stand up and say, I'm going to give you a chance. I see you. I see that there is something more in you than just who you've been or what you've done. And as a church, as we begin to, to move into that place of what does it mean for us as Community Covenant Church to be a healthy, missional church, seeking Christ and Christ's priorities in the world, what does that mean? Who do we need to invite into our lives doesn't mean you give them full access. There's wisdom. There's discernment. But sometimes we excuse our unwillingness because we're just afraid. I encourage you this morning that during the response time, for you to think about one person, and maybe it's somebody close, and maybe it's somebody far. I don't know but that the Lord would give you a vision of what does it mean for you to act as a reconciler, for you to see how someone is changing and give them a chance and extend your protection over them, your influence over them. I'm going to read the last piece of this passage because I think this is important as well. Verse 28 says, So Saul stayed with them and moved freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. It gave him more boldness. It gave him the freedom to do what God was calling him to do. Because he was extended community. And he was extended a place at the table. How can we do that? How can you do that? Christ offered us a place at the table. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, when you prove it to me, 
He didn't say when you get it figured out. He didn't say when you work this plan. He said, now, I love you, I want you, and I'm offering you a seat now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your generosity to us, Lord, for the hope and the faith that you have, the spirit that you give us, Lord, to be able to act with boldness. And Lord, this morning, I pray that you would give us the courage to act as reconcilers, to offer forgiveness, Lord, to be one who gives someone a chance. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be wise in that and that you would extend your hand of protection over us, Lord, but help us not to be afraid, but to obey and to know that you are with us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.